Well, we have a, a, a long passage before us, so let us ask for the Lord's help this morning. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your great grace. We thank you that you are supreme and sovereign over all things. And these stories that we've been um, studying over the last several weeks, Lord, they matter for us. They are examples to us. They help us to know how we are to relate to you and how we are to obey you. And they reveal to us, more importantly, who you are and who you would send from this lineage in Jesus Christ. Lord, we ask that what we know not, you would teach us. What we have not, you would give us. And what we are not, you would kindly make us more like Jesus today. Lord, I pray that my words would glorify you. And you would help us to understand and to grow our affections for you. We pray these things for the sake of your name. We love you, Jesus. Amen. You know, there comes a point in everyone's life where we see the work and the character of someone else and naturally, we want to be or we desire to be just like them, right? Uh, we would even call them heroes. You know, I think back on my life and I, I can certainly say through the course of my life that I have had several heroes at different points. Like when I was in the Marine Corps, John Bassalone, if you guys don't know, he was like a rock star in World War II until he died in World War II. But he was a hero of mine. I was like, man, I want to have courage and bravery under fire like that guy. But when I think about my family, I can identify very clearly two heroes of mine, my grandfather and my father. They are examples that I desire to follow. Their faithfulness, their love, their work ethic, their zeal for the things of God, they make me want to be like them. But you see, there's this problem with heroes. Heroes fail. Just about every person who has ever lived has failed. And even our heroes, they fail the ones that look up to them. They fail the ones they are called to lead. And they even often fail their own God. The truth is, for the believer, there's ultimately only one hero that we should have. That we should long to be just like. And that is Christ himself. Because he stands alone as supreme as perfect, just, loving, and he is the one who has never failed. And then your pastors start preaching through 2 Samuel. It's been a hard road, or as you know, we say in Texas, it's a hard road to hoe. We've heard stories of civil war and assassinations, political scheming, revenge, polygamy, and friends, stand by, because there's more to come, right? <laughs> and probably for many of us, we've thought of the heroes in the Bible in some kind of twisted way where they almost escape failure. Like, we look at David and we say, man, that's a man after God's own heart. I want to be like him. And then we see what David does. And it can shake a foundation, when we read and learn God's word, what we quickly become aware of is all of the failures of men and women, the children of God, and even men after God's own heart. I think there's a natural temptation for us. We begin to think, like, I'm so much better than them. Or maybe you believe, like, I would never do some of that. That's just nasty, right? No way. No way. 
Or maybe what's even the point of learning from these people? I think the Apostle Paul helps us here in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 11, when he says, These things happen to them as examples to us, and that they were written for our instruction, or as some translations say, admonishment. They were written to warn and to teach us. Teach us what? Teach us what to do and what not to do in many cases. Their lives, these people recorded in the scriptures, their lives are gifts for us to learn from, both in the positive ways and also in the negative ways. And today, we will learn much of the same from the life of David. We see a lot of positive ways we should follow after his example, but also we see some really disturbing things in the text that we need to steer away from. We will learn today how God unifies a nation by establishing a shepherd king. We're going to learn today about the risk of strength and compromises that we make when we are strong. And we're going to learn today about this great gift of God. And that is that we are weak and we are dependent on him. And that's good news. But more importantly, from the story in 2 Samuel chapter 5, we're going to learn about the supremacy of Christ the king of kings, the unfailing one. You know, the heroes of the Bible, they are not without failure, but what they should do for us is they should drive us to the one that they are meant to foreshadow, who is Jesus himself. So we're going to begin by looking at verses 1 through 8 as we learn how God unifies a nation by establishing a shepherd king. And we're just going to start by looking at the first three verses. Here's what it says. All of the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Here we are, your own flesh and blood. Even while Saul was king over us, you were the one who led us out into battle and brought us back. And the Lord also said to you, You will shepherd my people Israel, and you will be ruler over Israel. And so all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron in the Lord's presence. And they anointed David as king over Israel. When I started studying this text this week in preparation for today, when I read these first three verses, what immediately came to my mind was surfing. Anyone else? I'm all alone up here. Okay, well, it came to my mind, surfing, the image just popped in my head. You see, there's something incredible about surfing. If you've ever done it, you go out into the water and you wait. You wait and you read the situation that you're in. You try to read the water, this mass of uncontrollable energy that begins to swell and at the right time, You just try to get you and your surfboard in the right position for this right unknown time to take place. And when that time takes place, you stand. And that wave just carries you forward. It's glorious, (laughs) y'all. It's kind of one of the things I miss about living in California. Very few things, but that's one of them. (laughs) I think why did this make me think of serving it's because if you haven't read 1 Samuel, what you learn about King David is that he was anointed 
15 years before this moment. 15 years waiting for these three verses in the Bible. For what God told a prophet would happen to an unlikely 15-year-old kid who was a shepherd. And the time has arrived. But what strikes me about the life of David is his patience and his trust in the God who keeps his promises. So one of the things we say in our family worship with our kids uh, when we do it, my little five-year-old daughter always says, God always keeps his promises. And I love that because I need, I need this five-year-old to remind me of that because sometimes I doubt those things. Maybe you do too. But this is what we learn from David, that he trusts in the God who keeps his promises. And that trust would form the way David would handle adversity. Like in 1 Samuel, when Saul hunts David down and tries to kill him, David trusts in the promises of God. What does that lead him to do? Not raise his hand against the anointed one who is king at the time. He trusts in the promises of God when Saul died and Abner quickly backed Ishbosheth, Saul's son, and civil war broke out between the north and the south. What did he do? He waited. He trusted. He did not commission assassins to go. He waited. He trusted. Now, he, of course, did not handle every situation perfectly, as we have learned over the last several weeks. But one of his gifts was what I'm going to call taking a tactical pause. He would pause. He, would, he didn't try to force God to do things within what he desired to occur in the moment. But he paused. Why? Because he knew the Lord establishes kings and kingdoms, not men. It's what the Bible teaches us throughout the Proverbs and in other places. And what this informs us is about kind of one of the things we struggle with as a people. We struggle deeply with patience, don't we? Sometimes I like to ask people, I probably ask many of you as you've walked out of the church, I like to stop you and I'll ask you, what is God teaching you right now in this season of your life? Do you know what everybody says every single time? I'm struggling right now, or God's teaching me patience. Patience. Y'all, the Lord is teaching me patience too. Um, I got four small kids, and when I'm older, I will have four older kids, and they will still be opportunities for me to learn how to be patient. Much like you. But I think like, why is this one that we struggle with so much? Well, I think it's because at its heart, what we struggle with is recognizing and submitting to the supremacy and the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God means that God is in control of all things. The supremacy of God means that he works all things according to the counsel of his own will. That there's no one who can thwart him or change his direction. He is supreme. And he does what he pleases. And that is for our good, y'all. We doubt that. We struggle with recognizing that. Why? Because we desperately desire to be sovereign over our own lives. To be in control of what's going on in our worlds. 
And what God continually teaches us, as I ask you when you leave the church service, is that you are not in control. Amen? Have we realized that yet? No. <laughs> right? We, we, we need to learn this knowledge. This is wisdom. We are not in control. And it's hard. But if we look at the life of David and we see this as a strength of his, what we learn about how he has made this a strength of his is because David pauses and anchors himself in. He tethers him to something important. He anchors himself into God's character and God's promises. Read the Psalms. They portray this heart of his the most. David wrote many of the Psalms where we get to see a glimpse of what's going on in here. As he prays or he prays prayers and sings songs that are dependent upon the character of God. He says, you are holy. Do what you please. My flesh and my heart may fail. You are my strength and portion forever. You break the chains of my sin. You free me. You know what is in the hidden places. He anchors himself in to the promises and character of God. You know, in most situations that we face that are troubling and difficult, the way we handle them rightly really is taking a moment, taking this tactical pause and anchoring ourselves in into the, the character and the promises of God. And then something wonderful happens from that position of just taking a pause. We begin to bear good fruit. Fruit like peace and joy and love. And what's the other P1? Patience. Your responses begin to glorify God. So that tells us that we need to look for opportunities to take a step box back and take a tactical pause. For this moment in history in 2 Samuel 5, we see good fruit being born. Because the elders have looked at the life of David and they've identified three key things that lead them to unification. To acknowledge David as their sovereign. Here's the three things they kind of point out. Family. Competence. And God's calling. Family competence and God's calling. They said first, we are your own flesh and blood. Which tells us, most importantly, that the elders here are following God's law. What, what do I mean? In Deuteronomy chapter 17, before they had even taken the land, the promised land, God instructs them in how to appoint, appoint a king. In Deuteronomy 17. And this is what Deuteronomy 17, 15 says. Appoint a king from your own brothers, from your own flesh and blood. And despite the last seven years of tension between the north and the south, what they see is they share a common heritage and they are family. And recognize that recognizing their familial relationship leads them to unity. And it should be for us in the church as well, shouldn't it? When you quarrel with another Christian, or maybe you quarrel with your spouse or your children, I wonder if in that moment you are viewing them 
as family or as enemies? Am I viewing my spouse as a fellow image bearer of God or as an obstacle to overcome? Am I viewing this other Christian in the church as an obstacle to overcome or as a fellow image bearer of God who has been united to me by Christ himself? One of the lines that I love in our membership covenant is we will walk together in genuine brotherly love. We recognize at Christ Community Church the supremacy of Christ by highlighting that it is Jesus himself who unites us to one another. His blood unites a people. And that is deeper than DNA. In a fight with other Christians, what do we do? Well, we take a tactical pause and we remember who we are and who they are and who has united us. That's how we stop in the moment from going down a road that you cannot return from. The elders also note that David is competent, right? He said, they said that he led them into battle and home faithfully while Saul was king. Even though David had been anointed, Saul was king, and David worked faithfully, and they saw his competence to lead in that character of his. But most importantly, what they highlight is the divine calling placed on David's life by God himself, that David would be their shepherd, which is historically this high honor statement they could make. And uh, man, I can't remember it now that I'm talking to you guys. There's a really old stone text that was found a long time ago in this period of time in an, in an adjacent kingdom that that king would call himself the shepherd of his people. This is a high honor, high calling uh, phrase that's being appointed to David. They're highlighting that God has called them. The Lord has established this king and now he was ready. And David takes the reins. And the first thing he does is he makes a covenant with them and in the presence of God to be a king like this. And the first obedient action he would take is to go make war with the Jebusites. That's what we see in verses 4 through 8. Now, why is the first obedient action as king to go make war? Like, do you just like settle in, right? Take a moment, take a breath. Well, David is being obedient to what God's word says. In the same text, in Deuteronomy 17, what, verse 14, it says, When you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you, take possession of it. Now, in the history of Israel up to this point, when Joshua first took the land, he did take this area, this region, but they lost it soon after. And they had never regained it. We read about that in the book of Judges. And so David's first action is not just to unify tribes, but to unify the land itself. And so he makes war against the Jebusites. And guess where that place is? Jerusalem. What we would know as Jerusalem today. David writes this wrong. They take the land. And this is where Zion would be, the city of David, the capital Jerusalem. The most talked about city in all of the scriptures. One and two. Number one, Jerusalem. Number two, Babylon. What town will you live in, right? That's kind of the juxtaposition we get from the scriptures. 
Jerusalem, this shining city on a hill that would bring unity and be a blessing to the whole world. But none of this was ever possible without the Lord establishing it all. And in all the amazing aspects of King David, what we see in these few verses is the most important thing. And that is that there is an even greater king. There is a greater shepherd. Because very quickly, the text transitions. And David's strength now becomes a risk to himself and his people. Look with me at verses 9 through 16. In verse 10, it says that David grew more and more powerful. And the Lord God of armies was with him. And then in verse 12, it says, David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel and had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people. What's important here to know is it doesn't matter how cunning, how great of a fighter David was, any of those gifts, it doesn't matter. His victories were always the Lord's and not his own. The Lord established him. When Joab... We learn in First Chronicles, if you're wondering, who was the guy who climbed the water shaft into uh, Jerusalem to take it? It was Joab. We learned that from First Chronicles. When Joab shimmies himself up a 45-foot well to take the land that God had promised, it was not because of his strength. It was due to the Lord giving them over to the Israelites. When King Hiram, later uh, from Tyre, gave gifts and workers to David to build his palace, it's not because King Hiram thought, man, you know who's really an awesome guy? David. Let me send cedar logs, carpenters, stonemasons his way. He's a great guy. He needs my support. No, that's not why. It's because the Lord was with him. Not because of how awesome David was. Here's the important thing for us to understand. Strength comes from the Lord, not from ourselves. It's what the Bible emphatically teaches in 1 Corinthians when the Apostle Paul has this thorn in his flesh and he, he cries out to God three times, take this from me, take this from me, take them, this from me. And the Lord's response to him is, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in your weakness. Strength is a, is a gift that comes from the Lord. But often what happens to men and women who are blessed with strength and power is they, be, they begin to think, I did that. Or they compromise to get more. And that is what David does. Look at verse 13. It says, after he arrived from Hebron, David took more, what? concubines and wives from Jerusalem and more sons and daughters were born to him. Now there's something very subtle happening here in the text. The author gives a jab at David when he says he took concubines and wives. Before, uh, an earlier chapter, we see that David took more wives and concubines in Hebron. And here we see David's intentions and heart. That he would take these women, not marry them, 
and have babies with them for a purpose. David compromises under the cultural allure of power. Friends, there is great risk to strength. And one of the things that I've learned from doing biblical counseling is the need to demolish pretensions or the lies that we believe. And the scriptures teach us quite a lot about pretensions that we hold to in our sin. And when it comes to strength and power, here are the pretensions that we often hold fast to. The first one being, I did it all by myself. Look how great I am and what I have accomplished. Now, I'm saying that kind of hyperbolic, right? Hyperbolically, but we've all done that at some point. Look back at our work and man, man, I'm great, you know? We see this expressed in Daniel chapter 4, verses 28 through 30, where King Nebuchadnezzar, he's taking a walk upon the, the palace rooftop, and he says, Is this not Babylon the Great that I have built to be my royal residence by my vast power and for my majestic glory? Look how awesome I, of my, the work of my hands are. <laughs> What does the Lord do? He puts him on all fours and he wanders around in the wilderness until he repents. The risk of strength is that a lie will root itself in your mind that you have done all these things and your motive is revealed. The motive is for my own glory. Dear Christian, you must be careful to not become a glory thief. We demolish pretensions by understanding that it is the Lord who establishes, who accomplishes his will. He is supreme, not us. And we are to build and to lead and to be directors of others and giving glory to God. That is why you were created, to bring him glory and to enjoy the gifts of God. You bring him glory, he gives you joy. That is the purpose of your life, whether it's in your workplace, in your parenting, in your marriage. The question you can really ask yourself is, how am I not bringing glory to God? And drill down in that space. Or how am I stealing glory from God instead of directing it? Strength can be the risk for you to being a thief of his glory. The second pretension we need to demolish is that I need more to be secure. Like if I could just get one more employee or if I could just get this next building to house my stuff or if I could just get a promotion or make this number, I need more, I need more, I need more. You know the problem with that mindset is the the scale always shifts to the right. And you get in this rat race chasing after something that's fleeting. This is the risk of power, the the belief that you need more to be secure. And this is the motive for David's sexual promiscuity. To build a dynasty that would not end. Culturally approved, biblically prohibited. Where? Deuteronomy 17, 17. It says, 
this. The king must not acquire many wives for himself so that his heart won't go astray. And that's what happens. In his quest for security, he disobeys God and he compromises the kingdom and his people. It leads this, this act. If you just take the names that are provided here in this text and you start to do some digging in the rest of the scriptures, what you learn is this act leads to violence, murder, rape in his own home. Why? I needed more. There's risk to strength. And the third is that I have done no wrong. In Psalm 36, verses two, or verse 2, it says, For with his flattering opinion of himself, he does not discover and hate his iniquity. Or de- discover, detect, some translations say. And hate his own iniquity. This pretension leads you to be willfully blind to your own heart. And I believe this happened to David as well, as you will see in later chapters. When David looks down at a woman who's bathing and says, I need to have more. And he goes and he takes her and he impregnates her. And then finds out who her husband is. And to get around it ends up murdering her husband. And he, he can't even see what he's doing is more and more evil as time goes by to cover up sin until a prophet comes into his life and so exposes him and makes him aware. You are that man. You're the man who can't see his own sin. So what do we do? We take a tactical pause and deal with our own heart. This is imperative So if you have position or authority in any way, I don't care about scale. I care about whether or not you do. I would encourage you, I would plead with you to pause, to bring someone in. Ask your spouse if they see any of this in you. Any of this in you. These are blind spots that we cannot see. And if you are discovered... If one of these things is discovered in you, what do you do? You run to Christ, the king who covers sin. You repent of your sin and you begin to, instead of stealing glory, directing glory. The reality is that we are not strong and independent, but we are weak and dependent on God. And this is a great gift. In verses 17 through 25, and this will be kind of short. My third point is always kind of like a conclusion as well because of time. But this is what we see in this section, that the Philistines are looking to divide a united kingdom. Verse 17 says, when the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel, they all went in search of David. But he heard about it and went down to the stronghold. Before, in the text, when the stronghold was built, he went up to it. So this tells us this is a different place. And most theologians and scholars agree with me in this. But here's what you need to know about an enemy that we all have. Whether it's a Philistine or it's Satan behind, pulling strings, right? Any wise enemy will strive to cause disunity. 
And this is what the Philistines do. They plant themselves in the middle of the kingdom, trying to separate north from south to cause division and disruption in a, in a very newly formed united tribe. And David cannot let this happen. So what does he do? Does he run out into attack? Does he fight some guerrilla war? No. Again, he tactically pauses. He goes down to the stronghold, which most believe was the cave of Adullam, which is the same place he would go when Saul would hunt him. And it's here where David recognizes his dependence. He does three things two different times that lead to victory over the Philistines. This is what he does. Number one, he inquires of the Lord. He asks God in verses 19 and 23, what should I do? And the Lord gives an answer. And then David has a decision to make about what God's word says. He can trust it or he can not trust it. And he trusts that his word is true. So what's the third thing he does? He obeys because he trusts in God's character. He obeys God's command in verse 20 and 25. In his obedience, he glorifies God and victory happens. That's kind of the the realm that we see happening. Also in his obedience, he does another thing that's really important for us as believers. When they defeat the Philistines the first time, the Philistines leave their idols. What does David do? He scoops them up. First Chronicles says he then takes them and burns them. David destroys these idols. I would argue, dear friends, that God calls you to make war against idols. And when you discover them, you go and burn them. That brings glory to God. You tearing these things down in your heart and helping others tear them down in their hearts too. This brings glory to God. The text says the Lord bursts out. He breaks through. In life, we often find ourselves in sin and despair, brokenness, frustration, at a loss, right? Like you name it, we could keep going on. But what will you do when the moment comes? Well, here's an example we can follow. Again, we tactically pause. We go down to the stronghold. We inquire of the Lord. We pray and ask him for direction and help. He speaks in his word. Now, his speaking may not be like, listen to the sounds of marching in the tops of the balsam trees. Okay? That might not be what you get. But what you will get from God's word every time is the exact measure of what you need. And he will help you and direct you. The question is, will you trust the counsel of his word? And will you obey it? I would argue that breakthrough happens for the one who inquires, trusts, and obeys. So what will you do? David, in many ways, is this great example for us to follow. And in others, he is a great example for us to flee from. Y'all, he's an imperfect king whom God established for the purpose of bringing about another king. A king who redeems sinners like you and me. A shepherd who doesn't compromise, doesn't neglect, doesn't harm, but one who cares and loves and nourishes, intercedes and advocates for his sheep. David is meant to point you to the great shepherd. 
who lays down his life for his sheep. He is the hero of the Bible who is alluded to on every page of the scriptures. And you and I can know him in the closest ways. What a great grace. My prayer for you is that you would truly treasure Christ, the Supreme King, and that your life will be marked by trusting and following him with your whole heart. Let's stand and pray.